Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I am joined today by Beverly Lee and Stephanie Ellis, as always. And today we are honored to be talking to uh, U.S. author Coy Hall. Um, Coy is, uh, I know, is an author of folk horror. I've only had the opportunity to read one story. I apologize for that. Um, but it's a damn good story. And uh, I can't remember the name of the anthology. It's a folk tale anthology um but uh yeah um you have a new collection out now too um and i never remember titles even though i wrote it down somewhere i don't remember bringing my notes to the table oh, either that one steph, steph has it there steph doing the walkthrough with the book <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but yeah give us a little rundown on yourself and your books and uh um let people know a little bit about you and we'll roll from there oh thanks for having me um so, yeah, the the anthology we're talking about is Fiends in the Furrows, and one of my first uh, kind of big breaks, I guess, uh, with publishing was getting a story in Fiends in the Furrows because it it actually um, was read. It was published in other anthologies before that weren't read, but that was one that was read um, and um, was nice. And uh, Steph was in that had a story in that too, All right? So that's a connection that we have. But I've been um, publishing stories short stories since around 2010 um and i just recently started moving into longer work so my first book uh, grimoire of the four imposters was uh, published by nose touch press this september um i'm working on um a couple more novels for for nose touch press i'm going to be doing an, an occult mystery series with a character called Doran Toth, and uh, he has a dog named Vinegar Tom. And uh, I'm going to do an occult mystery series about them, a three-novel series uh, that was set in the 17th century. Uh, and it's going to start with one called The Promise of Plague Wolves, and hopefully that'll be out uh, in maybe 2022 or 2023. Um, right on. Aside from that, I've, I'm a professor of history, and I teach um, medieval history and early modern history, which like 1500 to 1800 European history. Uh, that's heavy. I hated my history teacher in college. <laughs> Good start. Uh, yeah, well, he was he was one of those guys who, if you were thirty seconds late, the door was locked and you couldn't get into class. And yeah, yeah, old school, old, yeah. old school exactly. You can't you yeah. can't get away. It's you can't get away with that anymore, really. Not that I would yeah. want to be that way. Uh, I don't. I never thought there was any value in that. I hated guys like nah. that. Nah. I had a I had a guy, a history professor that I hated. Uh, and he would, and I'm not going to say any more details about this person <laughs> because he's still out there, but, <laughs> um, but he would make us do, we had this class um, on Alexander the Great, right? And this was like a graduate level class. And the whole class would, every week you would have to write a 10 page paper and you would have to stand in front of the class and read it. And it would, like five, it would take like three hours you know, <laughs> to read these papers. <laughs> and he would just stand in the back of the room and ridicule you. That was the class. You would just read it, and he'd stop you and just ridicule you and tell you how awful you are. Um, uh, <laughs> I uh, wouldn't make it. <laughs> and that was it. It was just like this gauntlet of insults, and you would sit down, and your face would be red, and I just want to go home <laughs> at that point. But uh, yeah, yeah so 
I've I've had bad experiences with some history professors. Um, all professors, though, you know, they're people. They're they're good ones and bad ones, and ones you just don't just aren't compatible with. This guy wasn't compatible with any human being. I yeah, I uh, um, God rest her dead soul. My bane was Mrs. Mismansky, my math teacher. I will never forget her. Um, I can talk about her because she's dead and I don't know any of her family. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But she was just that way. She'd have you come up to the chalkboard, try to solve an equation, and then sit there and tell you every kind of idiot that you were, you know, in front of like the whole the, class. The, like, the peanut gallery, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Where the teachers are the bigger bullies than the kids. Um, but anyway, I'm digressing. Sorry about that. Uh, so, um, folk horror. Yeah. Um, is that what, would you classify yourself as a folk horror author or is that just what, where the cards have fallen so far? Well, I, I do love it. And, um, it's a, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a bad label. Um, I would say I'm folk horror and Gothic horror um more quiet horror than like brutal not, not that brutal yeah. of an author a lot of people use that term describe authors as brutal but you're never gonna say my story brutal probably mm -hmm. yeah um but but yeah folk horror is something that i always loved with like um mr james mr james one of my heroes mm. and um his like the ghost stories of an antiquary that book it's one of my favorite books, uh, and and um, was kind of I liked him because he's a medieval historian and a ghost story writer, and I thought that's my that's my person. I want to be like Mr. James, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, and then like Ramsey Campbell, um, ancient uh, what's what's the not, I think ancient images maybe the one with Bela Gosi and Boris Karloff. Yes, Lost, ancient Lost. images. Yeah, and, and so, so th I think that was kind of an intro to folk horror, and I liked it, and I write it. Um, um, and uh, Steph and Bev will be better able to speak to the stories themselves than I will be, but uh, we're you're in a crowd of lovers of folk horror and quiet horror and um, historical horror and the whole nine yards, so you're in good company here. Uh, um, I've got a question about Sire of the, the Hatchet in that they are trying to discover who they really are effectively. You know, inside they are this this wooden sort of their roots, they're, they're from nature. What gave you the idea of creating that sort of other inner person, you know, rather than being human? What What gave you that idea? I don't want to take it too far, but I, you know, it's, um, I think the really the key theme in that story is the Puritan preacher, you know, that, that, that the minister in the, in the village, that figure, um, because it, one thing that always fascinates me about religion is like the pagan roots of modern religion and all, all the, the pagan ideas that go into Christianity that are borrowed from, you know, from pagan. And so to me, that that that's what that idea was. It's kind of like uh, Christianity with paganism inside, you know, and the, the, that minister to me, he's the he's the central figure for me of the, you know, um, presenting himself one way 
in an extreme way, and yet on the inside he's something totally different. But that's where the idea for that came from. It shows that people didn't really know what they were at that time, which is probably reflective of the time, isn't it? You know, the church is trying to drag them one way and their own history is trying to drag them the other. So they become this mixture. Yeah. And I think, you know, there were, there were people like intellectuals in, in the 17th century who knew about things like that and tried to cancel Easter and Christmas, you know, <laughs> and to do like Puritans did try to did outlaw all the holidays. Um, so um, except Guy Fox Day because it's anti-Catholic and they like <laughs> they like that. So that was the one that was the one <laughs> that, that, that they kept. Um, but for, I think the common person back then, yeah, is even offended if even now, if you would say that. You know, Easter is named after the goddess Esther. You know, it's, if you say something, that might offend people now. Um, but that, I mean, thematically, though, that was my my thinking there. <laughs> my, that's interesting. Go ahead, Steph. Yeah, I was just going to say there seems to be a swing back now towards those uh-huh. more ancient beliefs and stories and everything, and a rejection of the church. It's like we're closing a circle almost, even though we've got this scientific understanding and knowledge. It's like we're still yeah. searching for something, so we're going back to our roots, bringing in the wood again. <laughs> That's well, yeah, you know, um, and I and I think that um, another like, big thing for me with Sire the Hatchet um, was the executioner angle, um, and I love reading about executioners in this time period. I mean, what type of people they were. Um, and there are executioner memoirs from that time period. And I had read one as what actually inspired me to write that story. It was a book called The Faithful Executioner. And it's about um, in the city of Nuremberg, um, a, an executioner named Franz Schmidt. And like from the 1570s up to 1618, he was a, the official executioner of that city and he killed almost 400 people. And he was literate, which was, you know, odd for the people of his class at the at the time to actually learn how to read but he not only knew how to read he kept a journal of his entire life and it's it's always wonderful to read like at the end at the beginning he's not judgmental at all people are just kind of i killed so and so you know this is what they did and then at, he gets very judgmental towards the end of his life and he'll sermonize on these people you know this is what they did and i'm glad i you know i did this or i you know or i felt bad about ripping out that person's tongue uh, but, it, but it don't go that far. And um, but regardless, that's how he thought of himself. And he was an outsider. He was not made a citizen of Nuremberg. He was dishonorable. He had to live where the butchers and um, the like the slaughterhouses were in part of town. Um, and he was dishonorable. So that that was a, like another layer, I think, to that story. And you could tie that into the roots, too, of presenting yourself as one thing, filling one thing about yourself um, and actually being viewed, you know, h- how you're viewed by other people and how those things differ. Because the executioners were necessary, weren't they? And they were summoned. But when they arrived at the village, nobody wanted to speak to them and mm-hmm. they weren't treated properly. They had yeah. to go and sleep in the church. Yeah, which yeah. is that's a and that's a real detail. That's that's, that's one thing that mm-hmm. um, I always try to do is that the, that's how people treated executioners mm-hmm. back then. 
in some towns you would have to wear like garments like a purple cape or something you know a, a bright colored cape to show or a conical hat um to show that just that you're an untou untouchable essentially and that's the what i wanted to do there that those guys are untouchables um and this particular village they're not even going to do the dirty work themselves they're calling in you know mercenary work here to take care of their dirty mm -hmm. business and mm -hmm. then go away um what a, and they they pass that down too i mean i don't know about in the u.s but um they it tended to be a family business um yeah, where if, a, if the father was the executioner then he would apprentice his son to do the same thing um i read a bunch about this recently so don't ask me yeah, why it's it's yeah, complicated it's fascinating <laughs> Yeah, there's a book by uh, Keith Rosson. He's Rosson. He's a, a Portland author, actually here in Portland. Um, I think it's called Smoke City, and it's about the reincarnated spirit of uh, the executioner of Joan of Arc. And he's got a bunch of that detail in there too. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, pretty cool. fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, I'm gossiping. This is how I get by on podcasts. Oh, he knows everything. No, he just talks a lot. <laughs> yeah, we, we we just ask the questions, and, and you you fill in the exciting bits, though. Yes. <laughs> and I write down all the book titles that you mentioned because I want to go and read them. <laughs> I highly recommend the Faithful Executioner. It's a one wonderful book. Yeah, well, I've made I've made a note of it, so I will. That'll, that'll be next on, on Steph Salmon. <laughs> Yeah. Talking about you saying that the the executions are outsiders, but when you go to the grimoire, you deal a lot with other sort of categories of outsider there, and in particular, you get you use the Roma as uh, sort of main main characters. Yeah. And I think you're the character that's going to be in your new novel. Is it Dorian Toth? He's got that sort of background. What is it about that particular sort of ethnicity? Is it that interests you? Well, I, I'm really interested in Eastern European history, and the the Roma in that part of the world are um, or were or still are, I would guess, oppressed people. And at that time, it was on one side they're being oppressed by Germans, and on the other side they're being oppressed by Turks. And so they were in this horrible middle ground, right, where where they they they, they had no relief one one way or the other, be it Germans or Turks. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I think just like the era I'm writing about, just like the gap between science and, and religion and paganism and modern Christianity um, and the gap between, quote unquote, civilization in Germany, uh, Holy Roman Empire at that time, and civilization in the Ottoman Empire on the other side. And these people are viewed as somehow, uh, you know, less than and they're they're uncivilized people um and i i, I find that the prejudice that they faced and face um just fascinating and the, the fact that um doran toth this character is you know a professor at the university of vienna despite these days. so he faces prejudice every day you know and it is my idea and in, in his job um because he's of this class that's viewed as less than you know the the people of austria and, and germany is his surname a deliberate choice 
Yeah, it is. Toss. Uh, <laughs> uh, the sort of Egyptian link there. Yeah, well, you know, Toth, like the, uh, the, I mean, he's a god of a lot of the Egyptians are always interesting, like Egyptian mythology, because the gods, you can never say it's a god of this mm. or a god of that. It's a god of a list of things, but um, yeah. Toth, among other things, is writing. So I thought that was. So there's a sort of, there is a, a link between the Roma people and the Egyptians, isn't there? Or, or in theory, there is. Anyway, I mean, the way I came across it initially was through Philip Pullman's. Mm dark materials books and he talked about the, the Egyptians and uh it was the Roma and then I read your book and you got your characters and then you got the name Toth and then you know it sort of links into the yeah, whole I wanted, I wanted to do that because German people thought that um like Germans did a lot with anthropology you know in the 19th century um and contributed a lot to that um, and they were wrong on a lot of, they were right on some stuff, but they were wrong on things. And one thing they thought that they, they called the Roma gypsies, right, which is a derogatory term, but they called them gypsies because they thought they're from Egypt, right? Um, so they're, they're Egyptians, essentially. Um, and that that link in there, too, which people would have called Doran Toth in the time, they would not respectfully refer to him as Roma, right? They would have used the derogatory term. Um, and that that linked it to Egypt as well. I also wanted to use um, um, Hermeticism, which is, you know, um, kind of magic, uh, magical thinking of that time period. And um, Hermes, right, and Toth are connected. Right? And Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes Thrice Great, right, is the main figure in Hermeticism. So that was the Dorantos connection there, too. That's probably too much information. Huh? No, we, we love it. We're, we're, soaking, we're soaking all this up. But, mm-hmm. but, but Grimoire of the Four Imposters, I mean, it is such a unique book. I'm a third of the way through it, and I'm like, at every page, like my jaws hanging open. Where did the idea for the whole thing come from? Well, um, this is probably seems disconnected, so I'll try to explain explain my my thinking on this. But um, there's a there's I was really interested in the First World War, the the Great War, and in Germany after the war, occultism was very popular. Um, even I mean over into England as well with you know with Crowley and all, all that stuff at the time. But there's a, a person named Alvin Grau. Alvin Grau, and he was an artist and, a, and an occultist, um, and um, he wrote books like The Visions of Cheops the Second and stuff. That was one of his books. But and he was is one of the people who founded the Prana Film Company, P R A N A, and they made they were going to make occult movies with real occult symbolism in them. And the one movie they made was Nosferatu. And then, of course, Florence Stoker sued over that, and Prana was was dismantled, but and so they didn't do much after that. But um, Alvin Grau had this idea that they were going to make this slate of films, and they were going to put real occult imagery into the film. And if you watch Nosferatu, when, like, Nock, the real estate agent, when he's reading the letter from Graf Orlock, um, it's actually written in Anakian symbols those are real anakian symbols from magic magic with a ck right uh from the 1920s that's what he's reading and i i was reading about that and i thought i want i want to do that with a book 
but I like the 17th century better, so I want to I want to place the stories there, and I'm going to do this kind of set of stories where, like, at the beginning of the book, I say there's a there's an Anakian code in the book, and and it's essentially copying off what Alvin Grau wanted to do <laughs> wanted to do with Prana Films, and I wanted to do with the book, and so I wrote these occult stories, and intentionally it wasn't like a collection after the fact; these were all written like for the book you know thinking about this one project you, you you've read it all haven't you Stan? yes i have <laughs> twice twice <laughs> and, and, well, and I, I, read, I read it as a pdf ages ago and then i got the print copy and read it through uh, a little while ago because my memory is just rubbish these days so i, I keep forgetting things <laughs> i know the, the thing is, and it, it's such a lovely book cover as well, it's like one of those that would look lovely on your shelf. <laughs> it's very often that I will actually go and get a print copy if I've been reading the the ebook or the PDF. But this one, yeah, it's the second one I've bought this year that I've done that too. So there's been some good books out. Um, reading the, the Grimoire, there is a lot of sort of occult references in there in particular. I like the the dog's name was Vinegar Tom, and I, I was when I came across that, I was thinking, oh, hang on, isn't that a familiar's name from sort of way back? Uh, yeah. And then that's made me wonder if um, Hoss is actually a practitioner of, you know, occult practices, or is he just a act an academic? Um, are we going to see him casting spells or anything at any point? Well, you know, I think his family. Um, practices like low magic um where like academic magic is high magic right and he's interested in occult academic magic but uh, the idea is that his family um like Balatos is his nephew right uh Balatos is, is his nephew and that is after Bela Lugosi I'm a Bela Lugosi obsessor so <laughs> that's named after him but um yeah so so I do have Bela in the in in this book having some of those um, abilities. Doran, my idea is that they're inside of those abilities are inside of him, but he doesn't want them. So it's going to be a kind of a wow. struggle with him. You show that in in is it Lady Willoughby? Oh, Hyacinth. She's sort of highborn and she's in charge to start with, and then when you come to the end. Um, she's, I think she's gone, or or what, you know, she's dead, and or she's sort of gone way down the social scale. So in a way, it shows that um, having those power was it was it a deliberate to show that she was corrupted by what what she'd been using, or you know how the mighty have fallen. Was that a deliberate thing to show her sort of slide down that path? Yeah, that's that's supposed to add to the element the the dangers of deciphering the book right if, if you're gonna which she did you know uh, uh, that's the idea that she she did decipher the book and this is how she ended up um upset obsession drove her essentially into and in, into the life that she was and when she was in nottingham you know the life that she was living there and when when she was um uh, executed so i'm going to nottingham tomorrow actually Oh, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> we went uh, my, my wife and i 
went to Nottingham, I think back in 2018, and I love uh, Robin Hood stuff. So we were at Nottingham Castle and Sher we went to Sherwood Forest, <laughs> all those things. I, had a, I, had a, I, had a, I was thrilled uh, to be there. My wife and I are Renaissance Fair fans for that stuff. We've never been overseas, but we like to go to the Renaissance Fairs and w watch the, you know, yeah, the I spectacle. Love um, just uh, I just butting in real quick here because uh, we're in Oregon and Washington. We're having what's called a bomb cyclone. Um, it's essentially what you call a hurricane over there in the Virginias. Um, so I thought I thought we were going to dodge it um, with the podcast, but it's starting up. It, it's hitting us in full force now. So if I disappear um you should be able to just make sure the recording is still going and keep on going without me okay stay, stay safe <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it all happens live people yeah yeah if yeah I, if, if i wash away during your podcast don't worry about me carry on please. yeah exactly it's life man okay <laughs> <laughs> i was going to say Shane, we seem to be facing a little bit with weather in this podcast don't we yeah yeah um haunted by it even um, yes uh, uh we're so used to extremes out here anymore that it's just kind of uh oh bomb cyclone what are you doing on monday oh just you know podcasting and going for a walk and you know it's just normal life now so <laughs> sure yeah. we just kind of you know you got to carry on you can't just shut everything down for extreme weather or we'll all just sit home all the time which sounds lovely as long as, long as we don't have that strange sound that appeared last week when we were talking to Trent Warworth, <laughs> that was very odd, wasn't it? Extremely, yeah. Um, you know, I was looking for that when I was doing the edits the other day, and I can't find it. So yeah, I guess there was a ghost in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was my that was my uh, interjection. Um, I think we'll be fine. It should be mostly the coast that gets the hard stuff. Although um, I can barely hear what I'm saying to you guys right now. So if this is the light front edge of it, um, I feel really sorry for those guys. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was uh, sorry. I'm going. Um, I I get disconcerted every time I look up and don't see my face. <laughs> um I don't remember now. I had a I wrote a note here and I don't know what I was talking about now, so I guess I uh I, I will take a pass and let one of you save me. Okay. Come on, Steph. Okay. What is it about the seventeenth century that particularly draws you? And which bit of the seventeenth century is it's the sort of mid times when you've got, you know, either side you're going through well, particularly over here we've got the whole Civil War, Puritans, and everything else. Is it this? Is it because it's that point where you've got uh, rediscovery of old ideas of the ancients, but you're just before going into the age of reason? Is it because it's this place of dis rediscovery? Yeah, I think to me the 17th century is very traumatic, um, and it has one foot in the Middle Ages and it has one foot 
and a modern era. And I think people are just pushed and pulled um, throughout. And the, the ideas that come out of that are, are fascinating to me. Um, for example, like people were already thinking of, this is one thing that got me obsessed with this era. I was reading about ideas about space travel in the 17th century. Uh, so people were curious about space travel and had the desire to travel in space, but were thinking through the problem from what they had before them. So this this was uh, talking about their ideas for it. Well, if you want to go to the moon, how would you get to the moon? Um, and there were ideas like you could tie yourself to a thousand geese, <laughs> <laughs> a thousand geese, and just pray that they know where the moon is, <laughs> like kind of direct them. But you're probably, you know, going with the geese wherever they go. If you get enough geese, though, you're gonna you can fly up there. Um, or or they kind of sometimes had like right ideas, like you could be a projectile. So if you put yourself in a large cannon, you can fire yourself <laughs> to the moon. Uh, which is almost right, right? I mean, it's like, they're, they're, well, that's not bad. Like, you're thinking in the right direction there. Um, and that, to me, that that epitomizes that age because you have the desire for space travel um, and they're theorizing about how to do it. They're just not there yet. Um, and so I think that that drive to do things, but the, the lack of knowledge about how, how to do those things makes it this very traumatic period. Yeah, it's and also, it was kind of, sorry, it was kind of, uh, I mean, you think about the people who were uh, shunned or even jailed for actually learning about the universe and learning about, you know, yeah. Um, well, that kind of ties back, you know, when I was talking about hermeticism earlier, there's a hermeticist and a, a monk, it was in the Catholic Church, his name is Giordano Bruno, and he's an... Um, kind of infamous figure, but he was burned at the stake in the year 1600 in Rome, right? And one of the reasons that he got in trouble was that he theorized that there were infinite planets um, with life on them in the universe. And this is the 1500s, right? And thinking that um, they're infinite and he wouldn't take it back and he wouldn't say, this This was, you know, still like, um, you're getting right up to like, right before Galileo and stuff mm -hmm. at, at that point. Um, and so the Catholic Church was still pretty tough on that, especially if you're in Rome, which he was in Rome, and he was burned, burned alive for, for doing that. Um, but, yeah, that's his... Uh, mm, Catholics like fire, huh? <laughs> they do, you know, um, that's one thing, at least, you know, in the colonies and in the United States did not use burning um as a punishment mm -hmm. um they would hang witches here they never burned any witches in the colonies um but so that's one thing we have yeah we don't um, we don't have much <laughs> we have that right we, we yeah can bra we can brag that we never burned yeah we know we, yeah we're we were uh wholesome people we never burned anyone to death we preferred drawing and quartering and <laughs> you know like um that's another, like getting back to the executioner thing that that's something that always fascinated me with the when people would be put to death by burning um and sometimes they would feel guilty about it uh, because they didn't do it out of cruelty they burned people to destroy their body because they believe in mm -hmm. bodily resurrection and yeah it's like damning you and so they would try to make it easier on you sometimes like they would uh 
was one story I was reading where they taught a woman, they were burning her and they tied um, sacks of gunpowder to her oh. chest. Mm-hmm. So when the flames would reach her, she'd blow up, essentially. Uh, they would put like they put like wreaths of pitch around you to accelerate the fire and stuff, or they would strangle you like from you know before the flames would burn you. And I, that, that, that I don't know what I'm trying to get at there. Like those those are conflicting ideas. You want to burn mm-hmm. someone to death, but you don't want it to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Which is it? That's interesting to me. And uh, and as a historian and a writer, that's what I like to explore you know like that 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 gray area in in between those two extremes yeah there's a that logic is really um i love that kind of logic it was uh the former name of this when i when this podcast was formerly my uh review blog years ago and it was shotgun logic and that was where i got that term from was that logic of you know the conflicting what you were just talking about those conflicting ideas of well we don't want to hurt them but we want to kill them brutally Necessary. <laughs> yeah exactly right. so you're going to explode instead of burn you know yeah uh, this will be better trust me <laughs> you know then sire the hatchet too that's a real like when they're going there they're going to drown her mm-hmm. right um and and in that time period, at least in German states, for infanticide, that was the punishment for infanticide was drowning. But they'd put you in a sack and would hold you under the water with poles. That's what they would do. Like the executioner would hold you underwater with a big pole. Um, and that's that's what they're going to do there in Sire of the Hatchet. They're going to execute her by drowning uh, uh. The, the woman in the story. That's that's what, what they're there to do, which they don't do, but that's what they're there to do. It's, it's like if you went back there and they said you could, you can choose your own death. I mean, what would what would you do? I mean, what was that punishment they had here where they used to put like stones on your chest? Yeah, impressed. yeah, yeah, be impressed. Yeah, Ugh. I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, that. Yeah, that's that's a famous story of the Salem witch trials here. Um, Giles Corey, that's. But yeah. pre his pre-trial torture, and he died. He was 80 years old, and he was smashed, you know, by it. But yeah. he died from that. Yep. Um, was, it, was it Sophocles or Socrates? One of them. They were sentenced to death, and they drank chemlock. I can't remember. Again with S. Socrates. Socrates. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah probably the way I'd go take yeah. a drink and. <laughs> 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 Better than being crushed or pulled apart or whatever else. Yeah. And you'd imagine that hemlock would taste something similar to to gin, so you know at least you could fantasize that you were just having a cocktail <laughs> for a little while, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> until it kicked in. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the longest blackout you ever had. Don't try it at home. Yes, here's your disclaimer, people. Please don't feel like we're asking you to taste hemlock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If it you feel a need it, to drink, try whiskey. It does not taste like gin. <laughs> Believe <No>. me. <laughs> I know. You know. <clears throat> Going back to um, the grimoire, and I think, is, is it the orb story where you've got mm. the Protestant and the Catholics are at war yeah. in that? So you've got, you've got the two sides fighting, and then you've also got the 
occult side there as well. It like it's like you've got all these different authorities battling each other to see who comes out on top. Is this idea of authority something that drives a lot of your stories? Yeah, I I think that you know, especially with stories in that era, um, the great comp- competition for who knows more um, is not like people arguing on Twitter today and calling each other names. I mean, these were serious issues if you were to contradict somebody in charge or to say you don't believe as they believe. That was equated with treason um, in the time period. So they took it that seriously. So, yeah, I think that um, that really drives a lot of the conflict in those stories. And that story is set in the, the Thirty Years' War, right, um, between Catholics and Protestants, which is my favorite, one of my favorite uh, things to write about is the Thirty Years' War. And the Fiends in the Furrows 2, I have a story in part two of that anthology, I have a story called Hour of the Cat's Eye. Um, and Hour of the Cat's Eye is a Thirty Years' War story as well. Did you actually get to see any, did you look at any grimoires? while you were writing? Uh, no, not like in real life, uh, no, but um, but I have read about them. That's as close as I've got. I'm never, I've never actually been able to, to, to put my hands on a grimoire. I would love to, but um, you were t- you were telling me, right, about the, yeah, the, I went the to, museum, yeah. Yeah, the Ashmolean put on a special exhibition about a year before lockdown, I think it was somewhere around there, and they had all these grimoires there, and there were some smallish ones, but some of them were quite big things, you know. And you're creating this little gr- this, your your grimoire with these stories. And I was thinking, where were the spells in it? <laughs> um, yeah, I I think like most grimoires would be not quite. I tried to I tried to up front say. You know, there's the message is hidden mm. in the stories, and that's how it's presented. Yeah. Um, but you know, real grimoires don't. Yeah, but uh, when you look at the originals, they're love. You've got these lovely little drawings of demons and devils yeah. dotted around. It's, Absolutely, they're, they're, well, they're, really... they're more like textbooks. Yeah, Funny but I, I still haven't worked out how people wrote at the time, and they never made a mistake unless they ripped it out and managed <laughs> to do that neatly. You know, it's like with the old illuminated manuscripts, everything is perfect. I think yet, that when when uh, paper is that expensive, you know, you're very careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, it, when when they would write on parchment, I mean, you had to like scrape off the top layer to erase something. Yeah, so they were yeah. being very very careful when you're writing. It's very expensive. <laughs> and there's no whiteout. No, yeah, I mean. That's a, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm old. Uh, for you youngsters, whiteout is something we used to erase ink with. <laughs> we call it text. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, I, I, uh, that is a goal to get my hands on a real grimoire. Oh, well, that'd be, that, that, that'd, be, that'd be quite sort of scary, wouldn't it, to like have one in the house? We have one in the house? Or would you do it out of the house? You know, I uh, I would keep it in my office at work, I guess, because I don't I, I don't care if it gets haunted. So you know. <laughs> just draw a circle of chalk and stand in. <laughs> I mean, if it just makes life more interesting at work, I guess. If there, yeah. I but that a, a ghost in my office. Yeah, that exhibition was really good because it had some of um, John Dee's yeah. bits and bobs. You know, the things that he used at the time. They also had 
uh, the little poppets that were made that were put in chimneys. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there was there was a mummified cat that had been found somewhere. All these little things, the scold's bridle, everything was there. Yeah, I, uh, John John D was as an inspiration for with the grimoire. Um, like he, uh, the language he created is Anakian. That's his creation, yeah. right? He, he, yeah. he created that. Um, and I always loved like that era when the Protestants have D and the Catholics have Nostradamus, right? And they're like battling, <laughs> battling <laughs> each other, you know, as, as these practitioners um, from France and England. So I always, but D's a big inspiration for for my my stuff. I like that period of time. So I've done my family history, and when I was studying for my own degree. It, we looked at the civil war and the Puritans and all those different little sects within that and your hedge priests and everything. And when I did my family, I found that at that time, sort of the mid 1600s, I had Puritans down in East Sussex. They were down there and they had names. I think there's one called Good Gift Crouch. There's nothing but like Puritans are like the counterculture like we had in like the 1960s when you know you name your child um like uh, moonflower yeah moonflower <laughs> and you know these things they, I, I like i love puritan names like there's one praise god bare bones <laughs> like my favorite puritan name i mean he was an mp god. i think wasn't he yeah he was yeah. that's the bare uh, the bare bones parliament yeah, yeah. um like with names like wrestling with satan and things like that <laughs> but it'll be like a normal last name like wrestling with satan brewster <laughs> you can change it then could you if you know i mean these days if you were called a, an odd name by your parents you could go off and change it but if you were named back then you'd have to keep it i mean what uh, would you be called for short <laughs> i don't know yeah Res wrestling with Satan, it's called Satan. Satan, Tan, yes, Satan, know. Luke. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I, I always love like Pur Puritans can be like fascinating. For they, they really try tried to be like counterculture sometimes, and they would do like when I always love when they would take biblical names but actually do like the English translation of the names. So I'm not going to name your kid Adam. You're going to name him Red Earth. <laughs> which is that like red earth smith you know or so you know something like that um i always love it it's where i go for character names these days when i'm writing anything i'll dig into the family tree and see what's in there um there was one i'm not sure that he's actually in my tree some people say he is but i don't think he is but it's called marmaduke thwenge Oh, that's a brilliant name. <laughs> that's, 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 that's interesting that you say that because um, the one character at the end of, of Grimoire the Four Imposters, the Thomas Fretwell. Right, Thomas Fretwell is one of my relatives from, who lived in Nottingham in the 17th century, ah. uh, tracing my family all the way back because my my uh, uh, family is very into ancestry.com and all that. And oh, I'm on that. Back. <laughs> Very yeah, cool. Us too. And but Thomas Fretwell is a real. That's a an inspiration. That was because I always thought that that's a, that's a great name, Fretwell. Uh huh. It's like I I. It sounds like I, you know I have social anxiety, so I'm like 
Fretwell. <laughs> Fretwell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's me. Like, as a person, I identified with Fretwell. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, I fret very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take pills to keep from fretting too much. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a great way to do it because it's it sounds natural. So if you kind of mind your family history, these names sound natural and they're unique. Um, yeah, well, I, I was I was supposed to be writing the other night, but after I'd read your the story with the and you mentioned the Puritans in there, I thought, oh, I'll go back onto my family tree again. And there's there is another little branch up north, and they were amongst the original Quakers, and they were thrown into prison. I think it's in Lancaster Castle. They were thrown into prison, and they were the original sort of first band. But because I've got so many, I could not find that particular person I was looking at. And I blame you. I spent hours looking for them. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of it, so there was no writing done, no reading. I was just stuck in my family tree trying to all, find this person. All apologies. But they they were all prepared to stand up and for what they believed in, weren't they? You know, to do be different. I think. Interesting. So you had Quakers and Puritans. Yeah, different ends of the country. Yeah, and they they hated one another, right? Quakers and Puritans. <laughs> That's a good Quaker, when, when Quakers started out, they hated preachers. You know, they don't like people, somebody preaching. So they would like um, streak through Puritan sermons, like get nude and <laughs> run through Puritan sermons. I'd and have been Quaker. They were like pacifists at the same time. So the Puritans would come out and like beat the crap out of them in the street. And the Puritans look like the bad guys because they're beating up this naked guy in the street and he's not fighting back. And it was always like a good good propaganda tool. I always thought that was like, that works. Yeah, religion is about science so far. <laughs> yeah. So how are you going to develop the, the character in Berlin then? So that sound, that's, if you say 1920s, um, the, the sort of next one I can imagine it being a bit noirish yeah I do want to do like another book actually that is a, a group of stories set in post-war Germany um, and I don't know I, I really haven't figured out the puzzle for it um, I um, I want to I don't want to be cliche about like lost films and stuff like that but I want to tie it into something like that because I, I absolutely just love the like German film industry after the war so I love like German silent film in the 1920s and I'd really like to kind of explore it uh, through that rather than through an academic angle right it's more like an academic angle with this these guys are academics and stuff so um, this would be like more in that industry Mm. I, I, I was looking at your website earlier and one of your books that you have got coming up, I can't remember whether we said 2022 or 23, is a Gothic Western. Can you tell us any more about that one? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, if there was a, if, if there was a market for Westerns, I would write more Westerns. I've always loved them, um, but it's always been something that I've had difficulty getting published. Um, and I have this character uh his name's elijah valero and he is somebody who he i think today today you would say that um you know he, he would suffer from something like schizophrenia something like that but th that wasn't a categorization you know and in his in his time um 
and so his he's battling mental illness um as but he's also this this figure who is um um a, a killer you know he's 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 good at it and that's and that's that's what he does um and yet he battles this and so i had written these sh short stories going all the way back and they were, were kind of influenced by spaghetti westerns the titles so like the very first story i had with him 2010 all the way back then um was called make ready a grave my friend valero shoots to kill <laughs> an exclamation <laughs> point on the end of that um and he just kind of developed into this more shadowy gothic figure over all these stories and this is a novel about the hangman feeds the jackal is a novel about this particular character and it's gothic and it's trappings so it has a decaying town and it has um this uh, it's in the uh pacific northwest not not too far north but um and it's there's a, this uh, far enough that sp the sp spanish have made inroads there and they have an, an abandoned monastery and all these things and it's this decaying shell um and he sees these ghost-like figures and things like that um so it, it's it's a, trying to have a traditional western story at its heart but with gothic trappings mm -hmm. sounds interesting there has been, has been a big re resurgence though in um, horror westerns over the past what 18 months Steph? yeah yes yeah, it's, it's the bit i don't write but i know that silver shamrock's next um anthology is a sort of western based yeah. one as well it, it seems to be the time for westerns whether it's a quiet um, one or a weird one or a splatter there seems to be the market there now yeah so this this that's what that's the angle i'm going at with with this and uh if if it turns out there's a market for it then i may might write another one so We'll see. We'll see on that. We'll see how it's if people want to read it, how it's received. I love. I hope. I hope westerns do come back. I really do. Here's a yeah. I actually I love westerns. I grew up watching the spaghetti westerns with my dad, and then you know I used to steal my mom's edge westerns, which were very very brutal twelve year old reads. Um, <laughs> Because the guy that wrote those was very graphic in his description of uh, innards, you know. Um, but it didn't bother me, oddly enough. And now here I am. I'm a poet and a horror writer. <laughs> Influence. Exactly. Served you well, yeah. Is this just apropos of really nothing at all? But this, uh, your cover artist mm. on Grimoire, is that the same one for the anthologies also same yeah. artist Christ yeah Chris Christine Scott um at Nose Touch Press and she mm -hmm. did Fiends in the Furrows and mm -hmm. um does all the covers for Nose Touch Press but just brilliant I just really love what she did um with with this book yeah I love the blown away the woodcut look is fascinating to me I love that look for you know on the cover for the um the uh especially with folk horror like uh I know John Horner Jacobs has done that with some of his own covers too, where he's done actual woodcuts and done the covers and they just really, I don't know why that just really jumps out. And I look at, I see those covers and I immediately think folk horror. But she had, um, when we first started the, the process with the book, she's, she's very good about like working, you know, asking questions about what you're thinking, um, 
with the story and the imagery you're going for. And I had shared with her um, a series of woodcuts called The Miseries of War from 1632. Um, and this is, a, this is a, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 woodcuts about the Thirty Years' War. Um, and I, I said, this is the aesthetic. Like This, this, is, this is what my, my thinking is. And so she kind of went with that. And uh, did a wonderful job with it, too. I think um, so, yeah. I saw that cover and was immediately regretful that I did not draw that. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of of those covers that is instantly recognizable, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I may may have to purchase it just because it's a lovely cover to have on my shelf, even though I've got the... I got the Kindle version, so there you go. <laughs> that's how I. Uh, that's how. That's how I purchase books. I said that's how I purchase books. If they if they look good on my shelf, I purchase them. Um, otherwise, I put them on my Kindle because I don't have any space. Yeah, the the, the war cry of uh, every bookworm, isn't it? There's never enough space for books. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you have to move. I mean, if you have to move mm. and you have books. Are oh, like, man. Yes. I used that recently. <laughs> we used to. When, when we were still living in our uh, our um, former house, which was 2,500 square feet, too big for two people, in my opinion. Um, um, I lost my train of thought. I lost what we were even talking about. Moving, but, moving books. Yeah, moving. Yeah, I had, um, basically, we had walls and shelves in every single room, um, you know, with books and books and books. So we'd have, when we moved, we had a wall that had boxes and boxes stacked along it, and they were all just books. And it was, <laughs> and it was the hardest part of the entire move was hauling all those books. You know, it's like give me a couch to carry. <laughs> if when you're moving, move the books first because um, mm-hmm. if you move the books last, you end up like throwing them in the garbage by the time. <laughs> I'm exactly. Not carrying anything. Um, oh, I hate this dis- fucking book. <laughs> dis- yeah, you're not like discerning at all. Like I got last time I moved, I threw away. Well, I didn't throw. I gave it to like um, charity goodwill but um and uh like zebra paperbacks from the 80s and stuff like that <laughs> which all of a sudden became pop they, then they published that book paperbacks from hell and all these things became uh-huh. really popular and they're like exorbitant to, uh, i did to, that to buy yeah. them you know i did that with a bunch of leisure books and zebra and daw books you know from way way yeah. back same thing and then grady releases paperbacks from hell and suddenly what i gave away is probably in the range of a thousand dollars or something like, you know when you're and when you're at that stage in moving it's like you're walking in the desert yeah <laughs> it's like exactly. sh- shucking everything I'm like, hey, exactly don't need this <laughs> throwing your clothes off and <laughs> Im- Im- immediate regret but... mm-hmm. <laughs> um and yeah we did that really like well our last major major move that we made um my garage was like wall-to-wall tools um, that we had inherited from my wife's father. Actually, we ended up giving those all away because I mean, I'm a, I'm an idiot anyway. I don't know what the end of a wrench does, you know. Versus, <laughs> I, you know, so it was like, okay, I've got a freaking garage full of tools, and I'm not moving all those things just so I can <laughs> s- 
store them somewhere else for another 10 years. <laughs> so. it, can, it can be a good thing, too. Mm-hmm. Not not always regret, but no, no. I regret the I regret the books. Somebody yeah. was very happy that I gave away those books. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably it's, it's probably somebody on Instagram now that has a special account <laughs> just for those books. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm mi- missing out now. Yeah, I think my biggest mistake in moves ever was uh, moving and forgetting that I had a stack of about. 200 poems in the bottom of a box that I gave away Um, and I never ever did see those back nor did I remember which box they were in that I gave away so (laughs) yeah Um, unfortunately they're all stuff they're all ones that I wrote when I was much younger and I'd hate them now so you know but then it was really painful so (laughs) we all do that though I think as writers you know um have that one time where you forgot to hit save and the power went out and, you know <laughs> anyway and in end of the world yeah mm-hmm. it is to us um where was that oh you mentioned earlier i was joke i was laughing about it um when you said that about i'm not a brutal writer and you know how some writers describe themselves as brutal and i got to thinking about the last con i went to the only con i've ever been to um and i don't think brutal is the best way to describe 99.9 percent of the writers (laughs) i've met (laughs) you see it you see that a lot and yeah yeah, you do. I mean, I I have I, I mean I have some gory stuff like yeah. Orb of Wasp and Fly and Grimoire. It's pretty gory. Ma- nasty. Maggots, Coy. You're very good at maggots. <laughs> that's uh-huh. like the that's the like Italian horror movie influence there. They always have like they always show maggots like Lucio oh, yeah. movies like yeah. always maggots. And so, <laughs> that's an homage in a way to all. There's a bunch of maggots in that, but. Um, but I, I can be gross, you know, for effect, but I just overall, that's not usually my, uh, my yeah. style. But I don't mind it if it moves the story. Um, I don't like it if it is the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I thought one interesting thing to me is like with that story is the pain of having a war injury in a time before antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes like a character in the story because it, it does so much to hold you back. You know, if if you have a serious injury and you're trying to move and move on and you need to move on, that's always fascinated me in that time period mm-hmm. um, that, you know, an infection kills you. Yeah. Um, and like you said, not to mention that, but the but the pain, you know, I mean, they would literally give them they would literally give them stuff either nothing at all or something that would get them so inebriated they couldn't function on any human level anyway you know right you know i um there was um i i really want to do something with like medical history at Mm -hmm. at at, at some point like use that as an influence um for for a story um Mm -hmm. there's a wonderful book called the knife man which is like about surgery in the 19th century the knife man and um, just absolutely 
you, no horror writer could write anything that compares <laughs> to the pain of you know oh, surgery God. in the 19th century. I remember that book, like just like a weird detail in that book that stands out to me. And I want, I have to use this in the story. That's like one thing when I read these books, when I, like history is always an inspiration to me because I'll write, I just write down these. I like that detail. That's a good detail. I want to write that. I want to use that in the story. I and that one, and that where like they used to, they made dentures. They tried to, when they start, first started using like fake teeth, they used to try to graft teeth into your mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, and they would pay poor children. Like they would, and this is one thing in England, they would pay like poor children to pull their teeth. They would buy their teeth from them and they would <laughs> yank their teeth out. Um, and I just thought it was the misery uh, oh, yeah. of, uh, of of things like, but they would like graft it in and they would like, kind of stick in your mouth, but then they just start <laughs> falling out one day and you have a, a mouthful of teeth. I thought that's a, that's a wonderful detail. Yeah, it and, really yeah, is. <laughs> I have to use that. So, like, I, like I want to do something with medical history. Of this. Um, the agonies of medicine back then are horrifying. I think that's why we have to, most of us have an instinctive uh, fear of doctors. Is I think it's a I think it's a race memory, you know, a species memory. Yeah. You know, um, well, like going back to what we're talking about, like 17th century, um, and I, you're like you're you're trying new things, you're thinking in the right direction, but you're using old knowledge. Um, like one thing, there's a guy named uh, Jean Baptiste Denis. Mm-hmm. And um, he, in the 1660s, was working with blood transfusions. Mm. But they didn't know about blood types, and they didn't know that animals <laughs> and humans have different blood. They things. couldn't do that. <laughs> and so, like, he thought in terms of sympathetic magic, like, he thought, like, lamb blood. Like, that's Christ-like, right? It's, it's symbolic, <laughs> symbolic enough. Um, and so, like, his first experiments were, like, with children. Um, to infuse them with lamb, put lamb blood and children stuff, um, which yeah. obviously didn't work. They tried to do it with like um, with to cure mental illness to put lamb blood in you. There's this one story of this guy tried to sue the doctor. This is in Denise time, and they put lamb blood in him, and he was like living on the street, and he tried to sue him because he's started acting like a sheep in public because the, the, the lamb blood is, is making me turn into a sheep and the doctor is like go and like explain that that's not possible but yeah but, what um, an interesting psychosis that would be though yeah like you turn me into i mean he was like he was like going into bars and like Acting like it, I don't know how you act like a bear, I guess, to act like a yeah. sheep, but there's not much else you let sheep do, chew yeah, on stuff, chew Jesus. on things, I guess. Yeah, chewing um, the bar stool, maybe, right? Bloat a lot. <laughs> I mean, um, no, but I that that's all I got. That's another air of interest, but I want to do something with that someday. It's a fascinating, I mean, when you think about like. And I'll leave this topic alone, but Lisa Quigley shared with us on the Ink Heist podcast um, the origin of a chainsaw. And it's horrifying, you know, if, um, that basically it was just a little hand crank device that they used to cut a woman's pelvis if they couldn't get a baby out of her birth yeah. canal. Yeah. Um, and Night- it's like nightmare fuel. Yeah, especially when there wasn't any real consideration about how to put that fucking pelvis back together once they cut it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Um, I'm glad we learned stuff yeah. from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I we, I was talking to Kath McCarthy the other day about we were going. Yeah, we were bo- born in the wrong era, and then I started thinking about medical practices and went, Nah, nah. If anything, yeah, I need to go forward to where you know they just you just walk through a scanner and it fixes you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, I always like when students will say, like say, I you know I would love to live in the 17th century. I say, no, you wouldn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 smell of the 17th century would kill you. you know, <laughs> exactly. That, that alone would be, would be it would be uh, too much. But, but a, a day trip would be nice, wouldn't it? Like if you could just go for a few hours and experience awesome. it, and then come back. Get a tour guide, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd want, if you went back. <laughs> yeah, I'd want a chaperone, I think, to get uh, me back back out <laughs> yeah. of the 17th century because I think it'd be hard if you're a woman to go back because of what yeah. you were expected to do, and mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to go and see what you wanted there. They'd probably arrest you or get you working, cleaning yeah. out the chamber pots or something. <laughs> You damn sure wouldn't want to phase in in a tank shop and in a tank top and shorts or something like that as a woman. No. That'd probably get you hung or burned. Or drowned <laughs> or something. It's a bit like you were talking you? about doctors and medicine, that women back then, the, the old wise women and everything, they knew herbal law and certain mm-hmm. remedies. Yes, they had odd remedies as well, but there was a lot of what they knew it has been validated and yet they were being persecuted for that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And doctors were, you know, doctors were going a different path and killing, you know, they, they wouldn't accept what women knew at the time, which is mm-hmm. quite, quite a shame. Yeah, um, I think the, that ba- there's like a battle, you know, in that time period for doctors to stamp out um, any traditional knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like going to an extreme, saying all traditional knowledge is bad, rather than saying there's value in it. I mean, there's some um, bad thing that, like, if you're eating, like, I remember w- one recipe for, a, like, a stomach, to cure a stomach ache from the 17th century was eating wolf feces uh-huh. mixed with, but it's, it gets better, that mixed with white wine, <laughs> wolf, and that should cure your stomach ache, but, I mean, like, I get, like, stamping those things out, but, um, yeah, no, but you're um, right, and I think that this, it was, uh, again, that's something that, interest me the 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 the, the highbrow coming in and try to yeah. stomp on the lowbrow you know? yeah and it's essentially you know people are con- condemning people as hedge witches who are actually just homeopaths in their way you know sure. and, yeah. um, absolutely and yeah. made money that and made money that way yeah and i think if you're a rural person it's easier to go see the the person in your village rather than to have to actually travel to a physician Mm-hmm. Um, or to or to be able to afford one, and yeah. you know executioners like the, the the book Faithful Executioner, Franz Schmidt. That's what he knew anatomy, right? Because he tortured people, and so he could set broken bones and things. So people, he said, he estimated that he treated fifteen thousand patients in his career. Mm-hmm. For like, because people would go, rather go see this guy because he has you know working knowledge and he's cheaper than a physician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people and local. Like, Physicians like ran a campaign against him to try to discredit him. Don't go to him. Like, you're going to get hurt. But he knew, what he, he knew what he's talking about. Yeah, he probably cut into more people than they did. <laughs> he's seen it. Yeah, he, he's got his hands dirty. So, um, where did you where did you find your inspiration from then for Adolphus and Barnabas, your automatons? 
I really pictured those. I'd, I'd like them to actually have their own story. Where did you find uh, them? That, that's another thing um, from the, the 17th century again. It's like a broken record, keep saying that, but um, the um, making mechanical men or mechanical animals or mechanical toys. John D, you know, John D got in trouble once because for a play, he made a mechanical beetle that actually flew across stage. He got a <laughs> question about sorcery, right? Because it, look at it. Blue. <laughs> yeah, he made a little flying beetle. It was mechanical. But they they would make like toys and stuff for kids. And I, I, I was just, I just happened to be reading about that. And I thought, um, if you mix that with a magician, you know, that could animate them to, to, to a, a, a more human-like kind of uncanny level mm -hmm. um that's that's where the barnabas and and um rudolphus right, that, that that that's where these characters kind of came in yeah, calling him the coffin maker made him quite creepy <laughs> Good. um the uh the that was actually you know i I think that was inspired by Westerns, actually, where they call people like Sartana, the grave digger and stuff, you know, um, and so Barnabas, the coffin maker. Right. That's, that's, I, that's probably the genesis of that idea, I would guess. There's yeah, our awkward I, silence. <laughs> the the I the the characters though I I was a little uncertain about that story because I wanted to be more open ended to kind of to take you into the book to kind of open the book to you so I'm glad you like that one. So, um, I don't I try not to ask this question too much because it otherwise I think it gets old but I haven't in a while. Um, if you were to give uh. Any any advice to a brand new author? What would what would would you think would be the one piece of advice that you would offer if you only had one? Okay, like jokingly, I would say don't listen to me because I, I'm not successful enough to tell you what to do. But, <laughs> but um, no, if you want to be like the academic, what would I my my sage wisdom I would pass on? I would say that um, don't write to trends i think that's so important to write mm -hmm. what you want to read mm -hmm. trends come and go and don't be timely be try try to because i i don't know for me when i'm writing if it's going to be good you have to be passionate about it mm -hmm. and if i'm writing to a trend what's cool or popular at the moment um it it's false in a way yeah. and so I, th I think a lot of people who say i want to be famous and and be you know a superstar I'm, i need to write you know this sparkling vampires or something um like a twilight novel you know mimicking these styles and i i, I would say just be yourself yeah you can yeah. be a nerd i'm a nerd right i get i write historical stuff <laughs> i write things that interest me you know it's it's and that's that's and i'm glad people are reading it that makes me really happy that I'm writing something that came from me. I didn't, you know, it's just all from within. So I, I, that would be my advice. So, yeah, essentially when you boil it down to 
it's pure essence it's one that's come up a lot of the time and that is just right right for yourself yeah you can you can never predict what people want to read no no and it's a waste of time to try try i mean try to write to your demographic obviously but write to but the first dip first demographic is yourself so yeah well the thing is if, if you don't love the story when you're writing it you can you can't impart that passion can you for your reader yeah yeah and i think that to me when i read when i read something um like when i read the ruin of delicate things like mm. you're it's true right it's not there's nothing false about 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 the story there's a truth in it Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something you can really easily put into words. It's an, um, it's a feeling behind the book um, that you can't fake. Yeah. And I read, and I read books that are fake and like that, your particular book was not. And I, and I think that that's what that shows to me is that that was, there's a real love for what you're do, doing right. behind it. And it's not just, you know, you're not, it's not pretense. Mm-mm. Not pretense and it's not repetition. Yeah. Uh, that was one of my favorite books of the year. Um, I actually think I read it early this year, but yeah, um, it's one of my favorite books that I've read in the last year. One wonderful book. Yeah. Thank you. Good job. People cannot see me blushing. <laughs> I am uh, in the presence here of actually three great writers right now in the form of uh, Coy Hall, Stephanie Ellison, Beverly Lee. So uh, you guys should um, all all pick up all of their work and read them. Um, I know that I've read one story by Koi. I now know in that it was in Fiend in the Furrows because I looked it up while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I will read all the rest. I have Grimoire sitting here on my fire and it's probably what I'll do this afternoon while the world rocks and rains and blows around. Um <laughs> But, uh, um, so, um, do you guys have anything else you want to share, Koi, Bev, Steph, before we, uh, let you all get to your, well, I guess you're in the U.S., so it's not that late for you, Koi, but it's, uh, pushing 11 for these ladies. Yeah, I I think, I think, I think I've gone through my list. You mocked up a few of my questions, Steph, so that was fine. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a list of books. Arena. The only thing I was going to say is you seem to have found enough home with no such press. Are they the ones that will be publishing your next works? Well, I have um, next year, I'm kind of branching off into mystery, noir um, type novels. I have a book called A Seance for Wicked King Death, which is um, a 1950s mystery, and it's not horror mm. at all. It's just a, a mystery. And then a sequel to that called The Switchblades Fingali, which is in the 60s. And these are just like straight mysteries, but um, that's going to be with level best books. But um, with the Gothic Western, The Hangman Feeds the Jackal, this Doran Toth series, hopefully we'll get at least three books out of that series. Um, That's going to be with Nose Touch Press, yeah. And I love, love working with them. I would I would follow up on the the mysteries though. Um, that's another passion of mine is uh, noir and um, re- really well written. I'm not an armchair guy by any means. You know, um, I loved Agatha Christie, but that was the extent of my armchair mystery. 
um, but like rural noir, things like that. There's so much great stuff coming out of, you know, um, the Carolinas and Virginias and Ohio. And I mean, so, yeah, that makes me excited to hear that you're. Well, like uh, Raymond Chandler is one of my heroes. Yeah. Uh, and as a stylist, like I just love reading Chandler stuff. I love the Philip Marlowe stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the and I and I've always loved that and that era in the 1950s. Um, so, but this is about um, a person who is a fraudulent, like uh, uh, he does seances, right? And they're fake. Um, so it does have that kind of occult element. I always work that into it. But he's but he's a fraud totally. There's nothing real about it. Um, and it's told from his point of view, and he kind of gets. It's one of those stories that gets uh, he gets out of the world and gets dragged back into the world, you know, after after getting out of prison. Um, and then the sequels 12 years after that. So, and it has like I got, I got really interested in like um, cults in the 1960s and uh, like UFO cults and things like that. And so this has kind of a background of a, a UFO cult, which he which he tongue in cheek like. <laughs> is is part of right and not as a believer but that it just he's just there and that kind of adds some good color to the story but it's good to say a good good bit of quirk yeah um how, how do you find the time to do research for this i mean you're working as a lecturer and then you're writing your books and there's a lot of research and things that interest you how do you fit all that in I don't. I think it's just with all the research and stuff. It's just been since I was a kid. I've been reading this stuff since I was a kid, um, and it's just you know I, I'm just drawing from that all, all that that background of stuff. Um, I also have a a dog who dominates my life completely. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a he's a Great Pyrenees, and he's like a 130 pound baby. Yeah, big dog. Um, and it's just a, a dominant force in my life. So, like looking back, I don't know how I do it. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I car, carve out an hour here and there to to write. Usually, write. Or I'm an early morning writer. So before the before my, my wife wakes up and before the dog wakes up. Mm. I'm an early morning to, writer too. Yeah. But it's because I'm still up. that's the the end of your day yeah yeah well but that's how you do it you know if you have a busy life you do it when there's nobody else in your life interrupting your flow you know so i I usually get an hour like 5 a.m till 6 a.m like an hour of peace Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can scroll you can scroll through twitter or you can (laughs) (laughs) usually the two the two options and the yeah I used to I used to spend a lot of time scrolling through Twitter. Um, now I don't. I DM some personal friends and maybe look at it, what I, what might be important and walk away from it. It's too much of a time suck. It is. It's it's uh, all those things are. So you gotta. Yeah. The... But uh, oh, sorry. I was gonna say, but um, we should let you go. We should let. Bev and Steph go, but I wanted to tell you if you're a Chandler fan, I recently read what a lot of people call the slog. Um, it's the annotated big sleep. Um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's definitely, definitely a textbook version. You know, it's I'll check so, that out. Yeah. yeah, I think you'd dig it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the history of it. And, yeah, so anyway. Well, thank- 
thank you for having me. Thank you, Bev, Steph, Shane. I truly appreciate it. No, it's been lovely to speak to you, Kai. Yes, it yeah. has. Really enjoyed it. Um, you can't ask for a better type of horror for Halloween, everybody. So, you know, go out and buy Koi's books um, and er anything you can find that has his words in it um, and make your Halloween. Uh, that's it for me. Okay. <laughs> so I guess that's goodbye. Say goodbye. Uh, thanks, you guys. It was great talking to you. Okay, then. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye bye.